Can we bow our heads and pray? Heavenly Father, we ask you, as ever, that you would speak to us by your Spirit and teach us of your Son, in whom are hidden all the treasures of heaven and earth. Amen. Well, it is 20 years, uh, six months, and eight days since my first service here, and now we're at the last. What can the past, and actually any past, tell us about the future? Well, this story from Mark is quickly told, and the meaning is quickly found. As Jesus tells it, it uh, he's looking back over hundreds of years of past, and uh, uh, that reality of a history that's presently important is vital for him. The owner of a vineyard has let it out to tenants who pay the rent in grapes, presumably, so that, they, so that he can make the wine and sell it, and that's his rent. But one year, the tenants won't pay. They won't pay the first servant to fetch the rent. They beat him. They won't pay the second servant. They beat him more severely. So he sends others who are treated even worse. Eventually, he sends his son. And the tenants, far from... Uh, the greater respect they might have for the son. Calculate that since this is the son and therefore the heir, if they kill him, uh, the owner's far away. He won't care. Uh, They'll care about the son, but they'll get the vineyard. They kill the heir and they throw him out of the vineyard. That small thing is quite important, by the way. They throw him out of the vineyard. The final act of the drama comes when the owner himself comes from wherever he's got to. He kills the tenants and he gives the vineyard to others. Well, the story ends as those listening realize it was told against them. But who are those listening? Well, they're the opposition. If you look at chapter 11 and verse 27, it's on the same page. Do please have that open. Uh, Page uh, 1016. And 17. The opposition is made up of the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders. Now, those three groups made up a body of 71 people called the Sanhedrin. They were in charge of the temple of Jerusalem. They were in charge of the Jewish people centered on the temple in Jerusalem. And once we get that clue... We can go back through the story, beginning with the vineyard. It is Israel itself, the land and its people. Everything implied by an image that was on the the temple at the top of the steps, this great long vine that symbolized Israel to everyone walking in, and that itself comes from the fifth chapter of the prophet Isaiah. My beloved had a vineyard. The beloved is God. Israel is invited to consider themselves the vineyard that God has. And the way the Sanhedrin interpret it tells us that they are the tenants. They know who the bad guys are in the story. It's them. God, the ruler of his people, has time and again 
come to those in charge of the people through his servants, the prophets, and ask them to give account. But time and again, those in charge have abused those servants. Now, God is sending his son. Jesus is looking forward and saying, and they're going to kill, kill the son. In response, God will take his kingdom away from those who have been in charge and make its fruitfulness available to those not of the people. That's the Gentiles, to you and to me. Now, that is an astonishingly bold message to preach in the heart of the temple, isn't it? It's, it's the heart of the Israel, Israeli establishment of the time. The whole structure, says Jesus, is going to come crashing down because I, the Son, have come. It's one of the clearest declarations in the mouth of Jesus as to who he is. He's the Son of the owner. I, the Son, have come and you are going to kill me. And then the kingdom is going to go elsewhere. It's an astonishingly bold message. It is an astonishing message. But for reading so much later, is there anything left in it that's kind of a surprise? We are to rejoice as Gentiles, yes, because yes, we discover here that we are the point and purpose of Jesus' coming. The gates of God's people are thrown open to the Gentiles and to the Jews that were there before. But that may not be new or surprising to us. So I want to approach all this through the quotation that Jesus offers from Psalm 118 there in the middle. Uh, uh, I suspect that um, you're a bit like me. And if I'm honest, in my private reading of Scripture, when I come to one of these quotations, I know it's only kind of just sort of backing up what's going said, what's being said. So I sort of skip, I skip over it, but I don't pay a huge amount of attention. I want to pay it a huge amount of attention today. We do have to work a little on what sort of stone this is. A capstone, and it says the, the it's actually the language says head of the corner. Uh, and the language is used in the Old Testament, sometimes of a stone that caps things off, uh, and sometimes of a cornerstone that sits at the middle of, of the joint of the angles. Here, because of the nature of the quotation, it does seem it's the one that caps things off. Uh, and to that extent is the, the thing that enables you to say, it is now done. The, the, the construction is complete. And a rabbi in the days of Jesus told a story about Psalm 118. How can it be that the stone the builders reject has become the capstone? And the rabbi had an answer. Uh, in the, the days of building the temple, uh, there was um, a kind of religious convention that there was to be no sound of hammering on the site, because it was a holy site, and there was to be no sound of hammering. So all the stones for the temple were cut off-site and then brought to the site. Uh, and uh, the, that meant that things arrived uh, not necessarily in the order they were needed. So the rabbi said, well, obviously what's happened here is that the capstone has arrived first, and the builders have taken one look at it and said, well, we don't know what to do with that. That's not for now. Uh, put it over there. And then they've got on with building things, and then someone said, oh, we've, we've done it now. We're just looking for the capstone. Um, uh, where, where is it? 
And someone has remembered eventually that, oh, we put it over there. It's overgrown now with weeds. This is several years later. Um, But the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. It's a nice story, but it's completely illogical. And it's a very important lack of logic. Firstly, there's no reason why, in that story, the capstone was cut first, as though the people cutting the stone did not know which stones they would need first in the building. More importantly, there's no way that that version, that explanation, says why it is marvellous. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. It is a marvel, a wonder. The rabbinic story is just a story of, oh, silly us, we forgot the thing that we need is already happened, do what we like. That's really all it's amounting to. Whereas both in Psalm 118 and most certainly in Mark 12, the point is that the Lord has done this and it is marvellous. Something much deeper is going on, but what? Well, it's still Easter. And what does that mean for us? Well, different things. For some, the empty tomb is really no more than God's affirmation of the real, the main event, which was the cross. Jesus has saved us from our sins, that's fantastic, but of course it wouldn't be fantastic if Jesus stayed dead, because we wouldn't really know about it. So Jesus rises from the tomb as God's kind of proof that the cross worked, so we're saved. And that's true. The resurrection is that, it's at least that, but it's much more than that. By itself, that explanation helps me with my personal sense of sin but it doesn't change the world. Whereas Psalm 118 and Jesus' use of it shows that this is a saving from sin that changes the world through those who are saved because there's a quality of marvel about it, a quality of wonder. There's a relationship between what has happened in the the saving, the the, the process of the killing of the son of the, the owner, And what is then going to happen? We can slip into mere chronology, looking at Good Friday and Easter as though it was just, well, one thing happened after another. First, the cross and all that deals with sin, and that's vital. And then, oh, Easter, that's nice. Sin's really forgiven, and all that's true but it doesn't explain why Jesus would utter Psalm 118. It all becomes marvellous, though, once we appreciate it is not just one thing after another. The two belong together in a particular way. Astonishingly, it is the very rejection becoming resurrection, the very stone becoming capstone that stands at the heart of things, What is rejected gives shape to a particular new life, and that changes the world. Now, I reckon that if I just left it there, you would rightly say to me, well, uh, that's uh, very airy-fairy. So let me try four different illustrations to try and give a more concrete sense of it. First, I'm going to begin with John Newton. As many of you will know the story, he was born in 1725. He was press-ganged into the Navy... It was so horrible he contemplated both murder and suicide. He was given as a servant to slaves in Africa. 
was rescued and became a slave trader himself. Over some years, beginning with a storm at sea, he turned to Christ. His influence over others was enormous, not least when he became one of the early abolitionists. He had a young guy in his charge uh, at at a time called William Wilberforce. But we know him as the man who wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What must it be like to know that you are responsible for the suffering and deaths of so many human beings? For him, there was no question of mere chronology. First, the forgiveness of sins. Well, that's good. And, And then living as a believer. What he became, he became because of those sins. He became because he knew Jesus had reached down into the depths of all that Newton had done and turned that experience of enslaving wretches into the redemption of a wretch who was saved. What's rejected gives a shape to the new life. Second illustration. A couple of years ago, we asked people in our parish, who cares? We asked them, what is it that hurts most in the life that you lead? And there's one answer that still resonates with me to this day. It's this. Betrayal, when I was the one betraying. So we all know what it's like to be betrayed, don't we? But what is it to live with knowing that you were the one who betrayed? I don't know what happened in that story, but I do know that if that person ever has a deep experience of God's converting power, it will not be, oh, I'm forgiven, isn't that great? Uh, Put the past behind me and move on. Rather, there will be a power at work that reaches into the experience of betrayal and turns it gives that man or woman the deepest sense of God's faithfulness, the opposite of betrayal. It is the experience of the darkest place that gives meaning to what the light of Christ will bring. What's rejected gives shape to new life. Third illustration. It's more than illustration. It's what Jesus himself is teaching in this passage. What is God up to in the event of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection? As though God says to himself, I know, I'll send to my people my son, and it'll be wonderful. Oh dear, it's not wonderful. Well, I'm so angry that I'm going to do something different. My first, plan A, didn't work, so I'm going to do plan B. No, on the contrary, says Jesus in this story. It is the very rejection that God experiences again and again, supremely when when his son is rejected, that takes the good news of God's accepting love out into the world of Jews and Gentiles alike. And it was planned this way, astonishingly. This is not plan A. But God takes what we do to plan A to show us what plan A was going to be doing all along. That's astonishing. That's a marvel. That's a wonder. That God weaves into his planning and purpose what he wants to do all along. Those things that we think are entirely in our charge and intention. It's not a mistake. It's a marvel. What's rejected gives shape to new life. Well, a fourth illustration, and the most personal for us. I've said before that we would not have stayed for 20 years left to ourselves. 
but cancer intervened and changed our plans. Natalie has said she would never, ever have chosen cancer. Who would? But now she can say that she would not have been without it. And I think I'm probably getting there too, but perhaps a little slower. Many of the good things that we can see about our time in Norwich would not have come without that darkest gift. We have a God of marvels for whom it is characteristic to take the worst and not just put it in the past, but reach into that worst and transform it so that it is redeemed. What's rejected gives shape to new life. And I suppose that's what I take from Psalm 118, used by Jesus in this parable, and it's what I want to pass on to you. Because this is one of those stop-and-pause moments in the life of a church. We'll remember the Millennium Breakfast... Those of you who are parents may remember the moment your, children was bapti- your child was baptised here. We'll remember the 150th. Perhaps we'll remember some big funerals. You'll remember for some time Alan's last Sunday. The bunting. And that snapshot moment of, a life, of the life of a church we'll find some of us going through exciting times, open to the future. There's a young staff here, and I don't know what they're going to be doing ten years from now. But there will be others of us looking at dark experiences of sin inside or dark dark circumstances outside, and we wonder what God is up to. And we would love to put it behind us and move on. And now something stable for 20 years is shaking a bit. Where are we going to find hope and encouragement? It will not be from whistling in the wind. It will not be from rolling up our sleeves and saying, let's move on, we've got an annual meeting to sort out on the 24th. Vital and important as that is, God deals in more than mere chronology. The marvel is that the great deliverance of new life, new hope, new purpose. These things come not by putting the past behind us, but by recognizing the worst for what it is and letting God touch it, much as Jesus in a resurrection appearance in the upper room allows Thomas to reach in and touch the deepest place of his own wounds. Because it is characteristic of our God that if we let him, he will reach down into the worst and redeem it and make that redeemed worst, that light in darkness, into the very foundation of what Christ can do in the future and changing the world. If you're here today, then, out of goodwill for us, but you have not yet found it in your heart yet to turn to Jesus and to follow him, hear me on this. The cross of Jesus Christ has the power to transform the very worst of your experience of what has happened and your deepest fear of what may yet lie ahead. 
That is the claim of Jesus as he points to the Lord doing what is marvellous in our eyes. But he will do it only if you hold nothing back of what you know of yourself. He is not a putting-it-behind-you kind of God. He is the Lord of history with a single plan A, and he has not abandoned his plans to change the world. A bit through you, through the experience that makes you you, and perhaps a bit through us, as he may yet do again in another place. As we sang, Jesus commands my destiny. But many of you are here out of love for us, and you have taken a decisive step to follow Jesus as Lord. But Monday will come, and the bunting will come down, and there may be again a fear that you know and a sin that you regret. Do not slip into the feebleness of living in mere chronology. Sunday has come, Easter has come, but normal life needs now to resume. Let Christ be for you the one who continues to reach down and down and down again. He always does. To redeem the worst, because it is his own experience that it is the stone the builders rejected and how they rejected it that becomes the capstone of the new building that God is to look after. He is talking about himself. And what I say to you, whether you're here as those who know Christ yet or don't, I say to us, there is excitement in going to Amsterdam, but there is also anxiety. I think I'm going there because I want to be out of my depth again. Given that our house is quite so far below sea level, I've got to be careful how I say that. (laughs) Not that kind of out of my depth. I don't find myself praying that Amsterdam will be easy. Well, at least not on a good day, I don't. But that whether easy or difficult, we will know in the midst of it the Christ who is Redeemer and the God who is marvellous in our eyes. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, we are here before you today with all kinds and conditions, some with joy predominating, some with anxiety. And there is no hope in the realities of our lives unless what you are doing is marvellous and what we could not do for ourselves. We can ourselves put things behind us. We can do amazing things psychologically and mentally. But only you can reach down into the very worst of what we know about who we are and our circumstances. And we pray that you would. Do a wonder, do a marvel. And let the reaching down that was in Christ 
the rejection and all that he knew, the worst of what humankind can throw at anyone, let alone the Son of God. Let that be our confidence, that you can turn that into the capstone, the seal, the building of a new life. We ask it that Jesus Christ would be glorified amongst these stones, and that each person here may change the world just a bit. Amen.